0: This uh, afternoon, we were looking at, uh, well, we've looked at a lot of stuff, and I mentioned to you I wanted to start off this evening by looking at a specific portion of the Quran. I have a portion of it on the screen, but I actually wanted to back up a little bit before that, so I'll just have to read you what comes before this. This is in Surah 5, and I want you to hear the argument that the Quran is presenting in this section, because it, I think, is extremely important. For us to understand, and this really, to me, somebody was asking, you know, what what's a sort of a killer argument, a one a one shot argument, and uh, I don't think there is such a thing, but I, I do think that there are certain arguments that are extremely strong, and uh, this is this is one of them. This begins in Surah five. Uh, this is Ayah uh, forty uh, four. And we'll be picking up, I think, around 47 right there. But let me read what comes before this. Indeed, we sent down the Torah. The Torah is the law of the Old Testament. In which was guidance and light. These are important chronic words referring to what comes from God. The prophets who submitted to a law judged by it for the Jews, as did the rabbis and scholars, by that which they were entrusted of the scripture of a law, and they were witnesses there too. So notice, the Torah comes from God. It, it contains guidance and light. So do not fear the people, but fear me, and do not an exchange my verses for a small price. And whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed, then it is those who are the disbelievers. So you must judge by what Allah has revealed, and He revealed the Torah. Remember, I, I mentioned the source to you where Muhammad said, I believe whatever is in the Torah. Notice, and we ordain for them therein a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a nose for a nose, an ear for an ear, a tooth for a tooth, and for wounds is legal retribution. That's the lex talionis from the Old Testament. But whoever gives up his right as charity, it is an expiation for him. So in other words, if you have the right to the lex talionis, but you give it up, then that's an expiation for you. And whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed... Then it is those who are the wrongdoers. So, what do we have? We have God sending down the Torah. We have God sending down the Torah as light and guidance for the Jews. Then, it picks up with what we have on the screen right now. And, we sent, following in their footsteps, Jesus, the son of Mary, confirming that which came before him in the Torah. So, you have Allah sending down the Torah, which is light and guidance. They're to judge by what is found in the Torah. Then we sent following in their footsteps Jesus the son of Mary, confirming that which came before him in the Torah. So there's a connection between Jesus and the Torah. Jesus confirms what was in it. And we gave him the Injil, the gospel, in which was guidance and light. Just as in the Torah there is guidance and light, in the Injil there is guidance and light. Confirming that which preceded it of the Torah as guidance and instruction for the righteous. So evidently, according to the Quran, there is a consistency, a divine consistency between what was sent down in the Torah and then what Jesus teaches in the Gospel. An intimate connection between the two. They're all revelation. They all contain guidance and light. Okay, that's important. Then it says, and let the people of the Gospel, the al anjeel that's us, that's not the Al kitab, which can be Jews and Christians. This is focusing in specifically upon us. Let the Al and anjil judge by what Allah has revealed therein. Now, once again, I have bothered my poor uh, Arabic tutor to no end. We've looked at this a number of times, and I keep asking, all right, I just want to make sure, I want to confirm. When we look at the Arabic, it says... Uh, by what Allah has revealed therein what is the therein? what is it that Allah has revealed What, what are we talking about here? the only possible answer is the gospel the Injil that the people of the Injil judge by what Allah has revealed therein and whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed then it is those who are the definitely disobedient now it goes on from this to then say Muhammad has been sent down and he has been given light and guidance. This is an extended argument for the consistency of Torah to Injil. Jesus confirms what was in the Torah and has more light and guidance. Muhammad now comes. He has light and guidance and he confirms what was in what came before him. So if you say that the Gospel and the, and the, the Torah and the gospel can be destroyed and didn't even exist in the days of Muhammad which is what modern Muslims will tell you how could this be an argument for the very prophethood of Muhammad this is an argument that Muhammad is making for himself and so most modern Muslims who make this kind of argument just don't realize that they are cutting out the ground from underneath themselves in the process and they're leaving themselves really with an untenable situation their own book condemns them because if the people of the gospel, let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein. How can I do that? If I say to you, I want you to judge my ministry by what I have taught in the seminar this weekend, you have to have been in the seminar this weekend. You have to have access to the seminar this weekend to be able to do that. Well, let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein. They have to have the gospel to judge. How can they be called defiantly disobedient? How can they be called unbelievers for not judging what's in the gospel if they no longer have the gospel by which to judge? It makes no sense. So when we judge Muhammad and his teachings by what's in the gospel, we're just doing what Surah 547 says to do. And we find him to be a false prophet. But if you say, well, you can't do that because the, the gospel has been corrupted and the Anjil has been taken away, well, that just proves Muhammad is a prophet too. Because now he's given us absolutely meaningless words which no one could ever fulfill. So which one do you want? Drink, which poison would you, do you want to take? Either direction, it seems like this text leaves the Muslim in an untenable position. Now, the answer to this is rather obvious to me. Uh, Muhammad thought that what he was teaching was consistent with what was in the Torah and the NGO. He just didn't know them. He never read Paul. He never read Mark. He never read Matthew. He never read John. He heard people talking. He thought he had detected a consistency in the teachings of everything. And that's one God. And so, well, you couldn't really believe in this Trinity stuff and you really couldn't believe in the deity of Christ. And, and he misunderstood the concept of sonship. And maybe somebody, maybe somebody explained it to him badly once. I don't know. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager and I ran into my first Mormons, I remember asking people I thought I could trust uh, to define the doctrine of the Trinity for me. And honestly, looking back, I was not given orthodox answers by the leaders of my own church. And unfortunately, that would probably be the case in a lot of Christian churches today. There's a lot of believers that cannot accurately define the doctrine of the Trinity. And so maybe it was somebody like that that talked to Muhammad I, I just don't know but the problem is the Muslim tells us that this is the very words of God this, there's no way of excusing a misunderstanding of the Trinity based upon Muhammad's ignorance and so you can't get around it so this is, this is an important section I've gotten so many different responses from Muslims on this but none of them are consistent uh, because they really can't be consistent. This is an important section. And by the way, that's the same surah in which we have the identification of, you know, have you, did you tell men to worship you and your mother as gods in derogation of Allah? That's Surah one sixteen. This is Surah 5.46 and 47. So I think it's very important to keep this, these sections in mind. And I think they'll be helpful to you. Now, there's, you know, there's there's 5.116. Uh, that, I think... Says it for itself. We already looked. We already looked at that. Now I have. I have here, and I. I'm, I'm going I'm If you don't mind, I'm going to paraphrase this myself. But I have here the story, a story that uh, this particular version, Abu Sa'id al uh reported this, but it's actually found in a number of different versions in the Hadith. What does all this matter when we start talking about the Gospel? We start talking about presenting the gospel. What do Muslims believe about salvation? Well, Muslims do not believe in original sin. They do not believe that we fell in Adam. As a result, they have a very weak doctrine of sin. Man does sin, but you know, everybody sins. When you combine the view of Allah as utterly transcendent, completely Removed from having personal interaction with man. I mean, even Muhammad himself. uh, It's Jibril. It's the angel that brings the Quran to him. He doesn't really talk with God. I mean, there's some who disagree with that. But uh, he is just the recipient of revelation that is given by by an angel. Allah is so utterly transcendent as as to not have anything to do with mankind outside of just simply this Fatalistic decree that just, you know, determines who he's going to save and who he's not, but hey, you know, it's, it's not like he's intimately involved with in his own creation whereby he's glorifying himself uh, through the incarnation, the redemption of a particular people. No, that's, that's, that's beneath uh, the dignity of, of a law in that sense. When you combine this utter transcendence with an unbiblical and subbiblical view of the sin of man, you can understand that when it comes to salvation, uh, the necessity of atonement isn't even understood. Your average Muslim will look at you and say, why does anybody have to die for my sins? Why can't God just forgive me for my sins? I mean, the constant refrain all through the Quran is that Allah is is off forgiving and merciful and so if I, for, if I ask for the forgiveness of my sins why can't the just simply forgive me of my sins why can't he just say okay it's forgiven I mean if uh, uh, if one of you did something to me uh, and, and you offended me and you came to me and said uh, please forgive me don't, don't I have the right to just forgive you do I have to extract something from you do I have to beat up one of the little kids uh, before I can forgive you? Why does there have to be atonement? And you know, we're not, you know, we're we're good at asserting that God's law must be fulfilled, and God's law says the wages of sin is death. Well, why can't God just forgive that sin? It's not normally something we think about, and the Muslim will simply say to us, "Well, look, the law says you come to me." And you're forgiven. Allah is big enough to simply forgive sins. (coughs) And he's done this over and over again. The problem is, as the Muslim looks into the life of Muhammad, and see, Muhammad really becomes the lens. He becomes the lens through which Allah is viewed for the vast majority of Muslims. He really does. Um... Muhammad was arbitrary. What do I mean by that? If you don't mind, I'm going to sit down a second. What I mean by that is after a battle, and he engaged in many, he might bring a man before him, he might sit in judgment, and they might bring the prisoners before him, and a man comes before him, and he's been his enemy, and Muhammad says, restore to him his land, and his animals. And he will live. And the man embraces Islam and he's taken away. Next man, exact same situation. Execute him right now, cut his head off. Difference between the two men? None. But Muhammad was arbitrary and it seems to me that most Mormon Mormons, yeah, Mormons... Yeah. Most Muslims, that is the problem with having both start with an M. It really, really bothers me. I'd like to come up with a different name. But um, the Muslims came along first. I mean, they definitely have the copyright on the M uh, area. But um, it seems to me that most Muslims, as they read the stories of Muhammad, reflect his arbitrariness onto Allah when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. Yeah, the, the Quran over and over again says he's awe-forgiving, he's merciful. But then they read the stories of even the companions of the prophet and there were certain companions who often wept because they were uncertain of their salvation and they feared hellfire. I mean, if you think there are Christian preachers that can preach hellfire, you got you to gotta read what, how Muhammad described it. I mean, he talked a lot about hellfire. And if if his uncle Abu Talib is wearing sandals, so hot that his brain's boiling, and that's the nicest it gets, um, those kind of those kind of sermons work well in Saudi Arabia, uh, where it's really hot. And so there's a there's a concern on the part of the average Muslim about his relationship to God, unless they're just sort of nominal and they just, you know they're not concerned about spiritual things, but an awakened Muslim heart starts looking around for how can I be assured of Allah's salvation? If there were companions, and the companions are considered the most holy people outside of Muhammad, at least by Sunni Muslims, we saw today that that's not necessarily the case of Shiites. But the Sunni Muslims, those companions, wow, they're, they're looked at as being great examples too, and they're highly exalted. And if many of them struggled with their own assurance of salvation and were constantly asking Muhammad, will I be amongst those who will receive life at the resurrection or will I be in the hellfire? With all they did, wow, what chance do I have? And they started reading in the Hadith, and this is the story that I was referring to. Uh, Muhammad more than once told this story about a man... Who had killed ninety nine people. He's a mass murderer. And he went to a priest and he asked the priest, Will Allah accept my repentance? And the priest said, No. So guess what? He killed the priest. That makes it even one hundred. then he goes to a great scholar and I'm not sure if the great scholar was just overly smart or knew what was going on in the community or something and so when the man said will Allah accept my repentance instead of saying no he said there are wise people who live in a in a city far from here who will instruct you on this (laughs) (laughs) sort of like have you heard of the fifth circuit court um I'm going to pass on this one um but he said, if you'll go to this certain place, there are people there who will instruct you as to how Allah will accept your, uh, your repentance. And so the man left, and as he was heading for the city, the time for his death came. Remember, from the Islamic perspective, when your time to come comes, it was written on your forehead, the day you were born, that's when you're going to die. So the man falls over, And the two angels come. Two angels come to collect your soul. An angel from paradise and an angel from hellfire. And they argued over his soul. Now, how in the world would they argue over the soul of a mass murderer? Well, the angel from hellfire says, this man's killed a hundred people. But the angel from paradise says, but he was going to inquire about repentance. And so they argued. And so Allah decreed, that a measurement was to be taken between where the man was, where he dropped dead, and the city he was going to and the city he came from. And if he was one cubit closer to the city he was going to to find out about repentance, he would go to paradise. And if he was one cubit closer to the city he was coming from, then he would go to hellfire. But then, Allah caused the ground to shrink between where the man was and the city he was going to, so that it was one cubit closer, and he went to paradise. Now, you might say, well, you just picked that story out. Actually, the irony is, not only had I heard the story from a number of Muslim speakers, but then I was on a radio program with Imam Shamsi Ali, and without ever having had any words with the man at all, This was the very story he chose to tell on the radio program about the merciful nature of Allah. So it's not like I'm cherry-picking this. This is a story that is very well-known, very popular. You think about that story, and you go, well, all right, let's think about a faithful Muslim. Does his prayers five times a day. You know, our friend that was here today doesn't do his prayers. Five times, I mean, from Muhammad's perspective, that means you're not a Muslim. Does his five daily prayers. And like I said, since that's based upon sunrise and sunset, there are times you have to get up very early in the morning. I'm not talking five, I'm talking four, sometimes into the threes, to do the Fajr prayer, the morning prayer. And you've got to do wadu. You have to do your cleansing beforehand. I mean, it's not like something you can just sort of stumble out of bed, go blah, 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 and fall back in. It doesn't work that way, though many Muslims will admit that's what they end up doing. But you do your five daily prayers. You give zakat. You fast during Ramadan. You don't even sip a latte during the day. Not even a bit of water. Which here in Houston or in Phoenix, that is not easy to do. Especially since Ramadan will be in July soon. Can you imagine what that would be like all day long? Just now being able to drink? And you've even gone on Hajj. I mean, you paid the money, you had to go all the way over to Saudi Arabia, you've gone on Hajj, you've done the circumambulation of the Kaaba, and you've thrown the stones, and you've gone to Medina, and you've done everything you're supposed to do. If you've done all that and this guy can kill a hundred people and go to paradise, you should be a shoe in, right? No that's just it it's no because Muhammad can give the land back to one guy and the next guy cuts his head off the the sahaba the companions of Muhammad they had they had given everything and yet they weren't certain of their own salvation and there are a lot of stories in the hadith about this as well in fact Let me show you... Here's Bukhari, 29, also found in Muslim and others. I was shown the hellfire, and that the majority of its dwellers are... Women. Congratulations, ladies. (laughs) Muhammad was shown the hellfire, and that the majority of its dwellers are women. Now, you're probably going, um, why? Well, he answered that question. He answered that question. Um... First of all, uh, your testimony is not worth that of a man. And it takes, I think, three, three women, two or three women to be equal to the testimony of one man. So there's a truthfulness issue on your, your latest part. And then, uh, quite honestly, you can't always say the prayers because you can't say prayers uh, during a menstrual period. So that's why the majority, uh, majority of the dwellers of hellfire are women. You might go... Well, wait a minute. Both of those are rules you made up, Muhammad. What are you talking about? How'd that happen? But that's funny. I'm just letting you know what it says. You can look it up for yourself, and it's a very interesting thing. And we read these stories, and and you know, I was just I was just this last week uh, listening to Ibn Ishaq, which is one of the earliest biographies of Muhammad. A lot of the material in it is also found in Bukhari and Muslim and stuff, and was telling the story of a a man that the Muslims were saying, died as a martyr, died as a martyr. And Muhammad said, no, he did not. And they're like, why not? Well, to see, see Muhammad had insight into his real being that nobody else did. But everybody else, it looked like he had. And so again, it's like, how do I know? Because, you see, you can say God is merciful. You can say God is off forgiving. But on what grounds? See? If it's just simply a, when I feel like it, then you have no way of knowing whether you've actually received that or not. You see, we say God is off forgiving and merciful too, but we also say he's holy. And therefore, a person can actually know what the grounds of having forgiveness with God is. And that is the fulfillment of His holy law. And there's only one way of having His law fulfilled in in a full way, and that is in Jesus Christ. There is no mediator. Much of the exaltation of Muhammad over the years, even to the point where there are groups that the Orthodox will say have become unorthodox, in their exaltation of Muhammad, the reason they've arisen is because they need a mediator. They have a holy God. He's all-powerful. He casts people into hell. Basic element of belief. Remember the six Sunni beliefs? Belief in Judgment Day. Which means belief in hellfire. And you become convinced of that and you know your own heart, you know your own lust, and you know how many times you've lied and your, your, your conscience isn't feared and dead. And you're going to become downright concerned about your eternal state. And if you've already been convinced that the Christians don't have the answers and the Jews don't have the answers, you start looking at the Quran and what is the only way that you can be promised paradise to die in jihad. That's the only way it's offered. is to die in defense of Islam. Now they will say, well now, jihad has a lot of meanings, and they're right, it does. We do not do ourselves any favors when we take simplistic, sometimes Fox News approaches to this subject, and there's a lot of people that write books, and they're into conspiracy theories, and the Muslims behind everything, and they're not. And, and please, brothers and sisters, exercise discernment in this area. There are people who are feeding on us and making themselves a mint in the process. So please be discerning. There are rules for jihad. And there are disputes amongst Muslims. And, and I wish the moderates well in their debates. Because I have to fly on planes too. You know? I mean, I fly back and forth to Heathrow and Gatwick and stuff like that. And, you know, when that plane coming into Detroit, you know, just about when kaboomi. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've ministered in Detroit many times and landed at that airport many times. And I think about those things, and I hope the moderates have a good ground for their arguments. And they do have a good ground for their arguments. They say, well, look, Muhammad taught that you're you're to have this type of attitude toward a non-Muslim nation which you're in, and if you make a commitment loyal to that nation, then you're supposed to live up to that commitment, and they can point to things in their history where their leaders, for example, uh, there was one point in time when the Muslims pulled out of an area, where they had taken the jizya the jizya is the tax of submission basically that we and Jews are supposed to give the Muslims when we live in a Muslim land and the Muslims for military reasons had to pull out of that area and the Muslim leaders who had taken the jizya which was protection that, was that, that, made that, that bound them to protect those people they emptied their treasury to repay what they had taken before they left it happened. It's a historical reality. No reason to deny it. Now, does that mean that, not, that, that it's not the case in, in places like Pakistan? Christians are relegated to basically being janitors and almost nothing else? Well, it's true. Remember the janitor who saved all the young Muslim girls about three years ago? There was a, a bomber... Suicide bomber was going go in and blow him up, and it was a Christian janitor that stopped him outside, and he blew himself up and killed the Christian janitor, but the Muslim girls lived. Why was he a janitor? Well, because you can't get very many good jobs if you're a Christian in that land. Is that wrong? You bet it's wrong. But there's always a counterexample on the other side. So be careful how you get into this stuff. Stick to the spiritual issues on this on this matter. Are there uses of jihad that are interior struggle? Yes. Can you make an argument that jihad is always self-defensive? that's the defense of Islam only? Yes. But how did al-Qaeda get around that? Any of you ever read any of Osama bin Laden's writings? There's a book called Al-Qaeda Reader. It's available for Kindle. I have it. And if you read bin Laden, and up until a few weeks ago, it was a different thing to talk about bin Laden than it is now especially given his personal life that has been revealed uh, post-mortem. But his assertions were quite simple. According to Islamic theology, and there's no argument about this, you and I were born Muslims. Every child that is born is born upon what's called the Fitra. The Fitra is the conscience that is the byproduct of what is called the Mithak. The Mithak was a covenant that was created between Allah and all of us in Adam. Sound familiar? According to Islamic theology, Allah rubbed Adam's back and out of Adam came all of his offspring, everyone who had ever come forth from him. And stood in this broad plain. And this is found in the Quran. He took a covenant. And, Am I not your Lord? You are our Lord. Then you can never say to me, I was not your Lord. And so we all confess that Allah was our Lord in Adam, made a covenant, and the remnant of that in our minds is the Sipida. Okay? Similar, not identical, there are important differences, but similar to what we believe about the image of God. And that man suppresses that knowledge that he has of God, Romans chapter 1. Okay? So from Osama bin Laden's perspective, and Muhammad said this in the Hadith, we're all born Muslims, and then our parents pervert us into Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, whatever else it might be. Well, here's the problem. What does that make you? makes you an apostate. See, Muslims will say, you're never supposed to take an innocent life. But, the law of Islam for the apostate is well known. And it's death. If you change your Muslim religion, the punishment is death. So, if you're born a Muslim, then you're an apostate, and therefore there are no innocent people, and you can blow up all the planes you want. That's the reasoning. Are there Muslims who disagree with that reasoning? Thanks be, yes. Are they the majority? Thanks be, yes. Can they win the debates with the minority on this? I don't know. That's the problem we're facing today. That's what we're seeing around us in our lives. But that's how they reasoned. So, jihad you would be told by scholars, is in defense of Islam. What Al-Qaeda said was, Islam's under attack. We don't need to have a caliph to tell us we're under attack. Look at what's going on in Afghanistan. Look at what's going on in Iraq. Look at the Palestinians. That's their big thing, even though they would never allow the Palestinians to have their own state because it's too much of a, too much of a political football for them. But look at what's happening. And so they pound away on that. Islam is under attack. We don't need a caliph to tell us this. And all the other side can say is, no, 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 we have to have a caliph to declare jihad. That's a pretty small line between the quote unquote moderate and the radicalized person. So, if you die in jihad, according to the Quran, Surah 9, and others, you are guaranteed paradise. That helps to explain what we've seen. Over the past number of decades. And what we've really paid attention to only since 9 11. We really didn't, this stuff was going on beforehand, but let's face it. Yeah, you know, the bombings of the Marine barracks and stuff like that, you know, we, we thought about that stuff, but let's be honest. Until it was on our soil, it was over there someplace. But 9 11 brought it home. And we look at 19 people who gave their lives for their cause in jihad. And what's happened over and over and over again since then. Theology Matters on the screen. June 30th, 2007, Glasgow Airport, Scotland. These are the security cameras. And down there you can see the smoke coming up above and there's a zoom in. I believe it was a Jeep Cherokee, if I recall correctly. It's uh, it's on fire. There's the uh, check-in counters, and everyone's uh, running, scrambling, uh, because the Jeep tried to get through the door into this area. Um, This really caught my attention. I have been to this airport many times. I was in this airport right about uh, there uh, in February of this year, in fact. But I had been through it many times beforehand. I've walked through that door. And ministered at the church in Anniusland, uh, which is right outside of Glasgow there. Now that the two men in that car, they did not die instantly. Their bomb didn't work real well. It's sort of like the underwear bomb, or his bomb didn't work very well either. Thankfully, they're not good bomb makers sometimes. The car filled with gasoline cylinders but they didn't go boom the way they were supposed to go boom and spread flaming fuel all over those people we saw waiting at the uh, at the counters they both did die of their burns however but only over time and that must be a really bad way to go uh, to be honest with you. now when we think about these guys what drove them to do this a lot of people in the in the media would like to tell us that these are down-and-outers and, you know, they didn't have any future and, and uh, you know, they, they're just doing this to get into heaven because this life is so bad. But some of you who know your history might know a little something about these guys. Anybody know what their profession was? They were medical doctors, both of them. They are both physicians. Now, being a physician... In the UK, <laughs> National Health Service, oh, maybe they were down and out, I don't know. But, uh, but still, it's, it's not as bad as it could be. They weren't down and out. This is what happens when you have the holiness of God, the certainty of judgment, but you deny God's own self-revelation of His means of salvation and you accept a substitute. They cannot bring you peace. You have two men, physicians, trying to drive a vehicle into an airport and blow it up and kill as many people as possible. Now, I would say that that even that, I'm not sure that Al-Qaeda would necessarily have approved everything that they did there, but it has to be a pretty perverted interpretation to think that spewing flaming gas on people staying in line is necessarily the best way to get yourself into heaven, but the point is there was a theological foundation for why they did these things. And that theological foundation was found in the Quran itself. Theology matters, and it matters very much in this aspect of dealing with Muslims. Now, there are... Huge stumbling blocks in your way of presenting the gospel to Muslims we've already identified most of them uh, in the course of the past number of hours let's think back at what some of them are what would you What would you identify as some of the main stumbling blocks in reaching the Muslim people all right they fundamentally have a, an averse reaction, an angry reaction at what we believe about Jesus. But what's it based on? It's based on ignorance of what we believe about Jesus. So, if you're going to present Jesus as the Son of God, and you must, there is no salvation in a lesser Jesus then you must define what we mean by Son of God. You must be able to give a clear discussion of the fact that Son does not mean procreated at a time in the past with a wife. It is a term of relationship that refers to the intimacy of the relationship of the Father and the Son from eternity past. There has never been a time when the Father was not the Father and the Son was not the Son. It refers to love, not creation. They've probably never heard that. So you need to be able to give a a solid and may I suggest to you authoritative presentation of who Jesus is. And do not be ashamed to proclaim Jesus for who He is. I'll tell you honestly, I I did a debate on this subject in uh, London and I realized that the church was a matter of blocks from one of the bombing sites of 7-7. One of the subway bombing sites. In fact, I had to take the tube to get there, and that tube line had been impacted by the bombings of 7-7. And the thought crossed my mind, you know, am I going to be intimidated by the Muslims that are there? I mean, I'm a human being just like anybody else. But when the time came, and my rather opponent had uh, proven to be rather irascible Uh, and I had the opportunity of responding the Muslims were on this side of the room and the Christians were on this side of the room they didn't put up signs saying to do that, it just sort of happened naturally Uh, you could sort of tell because all the hijab were over here and there weren't any over there I mean there were ladies sitting there in full hijab I could only see their eyes that was all I could see and I sort of turned toward that side and I said, look, you tell me that Jesus is a mere Razul, a mere apostle of Allah. You cannot be neutral about the Jesus of the Bible. He is not merely a Razul. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart comes from His hand. And if you lower Him to the level of a mere apostle in light of the clear revelation that is found in the Scriptures... You are cutting yourself off from the very Lord of lords and King of kings. And you will bow before him someday, but it will be to your condemnation. They didn't know what to do with that. They are so used to Christians basically apologizing for Jesus. And not in the classical word of apology. But apologizing for believing something that's offensive to them. Well, I didn't say, well, I'm offended by what you believe about Jesus. I didn't go there. I didn't need to. But they actually appreciated a straightforward, straight-in-your-face presentation that was authoritative. This is who he is, and if you don't deal with him, you're going to be in big trouble. didn't know what to do with that. So, that is one of the big stumbling blocks, what we believe about Jesus. Specifically in his sonship. But the other one would be, Sir 4157. He didn't die on a cross. If he didn't die on a cross, then there's no resurrection as well and let's face it most of us have never had to deal with someone who denies that I mean even the wildest liberals that we deal with you know a Bart Ehrman a John Dominic Cross and men that I've debated they all believe Jesus died on a cross only like someone like a Robert Price that I debated at the CRI National Conference last year he doesn't even believe Jesus existed so he doesn't believe he died on a cross but they're pretty unusual We normally don't know how to give a defense for that. We normally don't know how to give an answer for that. My debate with Shabir Ali on that subject is on YouTube. Uh, At least that would give you an idea of the direction you might wish to go and the demonstration of the fact that all of the first century documents that we have uh, that are relevant to the issue testify to the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, even John Dominic Crossan has said that as far as anything can be considered proven historical, the crucifixion of Christ is definitely one of those things. So, uh, but that's a big stumbling block. And again, the emphasis you have to make is on the voluntariness of the self giving of Christ. He did this purposely. It wasn't taken away from him. This wasn't some humiliation for Allah that was out of his control. And you know a great place to go to demonstrate that? Isaiah 53. Now, they may know the Jewish arguments on Isaiah 53. Uh, and sometime within the next two months or so, uh, I'm going to have Dr. Michael Brown on my program. How many of you know who Mike Brown is? Anybody? Mike Brown's Armenian, Arminian. Okay. But he's the best Arminian I know. <laughs> Someday he and I are going to have a full on three hour debate on the doctrines of grace. We debated that on his program and my program last year. But he and I teamed up against two Unitarians on the Jewish Voice broadcast just last summer. And we work well together. He is a great scholar, um, a good brother. He just wrote a book, by the way. If you want a book recommendation, it has nothing to do with Islam. If you want a book recommendation, though, most eye-opening book I've read in a long time, A Queer Thing Happened to America. 700-page book on the homosexual agenda in the United States. And I wrote a book on homosexuality 10 years ago, and it blew me away a uh, really good book. My wife's reading it. My daughter's reading it. Uh, I had him on the program just a few weeks ago. If you want to go back in the archives and dividing line and listen to it, it was uh, very, very eye-opening. But I'm going to have him on sometime over the next two months. And we're just going to do Isaiah 53. We're just going to do it in Hebrew. Well, from the Hebrew text. Don't worry, we're not going to be speaking Hebrew. But, I mean, he can. He's Jewish. But um, uh, we're just going to go through the, the Hebrew text and demonstrate this is all about Jesus. I mean, he's debated rabbis on this, and there's a book coming out on Isaiah 53. He has one of the chapters in it. That's why I'm waiting for the book to come out so we can, we can make that available at the same time. But uh, I'd go to Isaiah 53. That way you can demonstrate the prophetic nature of the ministry of Christ. You can demonstrate the preservation of Scripture. You're doing a bunch of things all at once. Rather than just one step at a time, you're doing a bunch of that. And most of them have never really read through Isaiah 53 to know that 700 years before Christ this is what you have being said so clearly fulfilled in Him. So you have who Jesus is, what He does, the cross, the resurrection. Uh, what else? I'm sorry? I'd roll that into who Jesus is. I, have, but I still want to make sure you understand what the Quran's argument at that point is, is against... The paganism of the day that asserted that God procreates sexually. Um, that, that's part and parcel of the understanding. And the problem is they then apply it to, it to Christianity. But I'm looking for stumbling blocks. Things that will get in the way of your presentation of the gospel. That goes back to Jesus. Looking for something else. Exactly. Corruption of the scripture. Corruption of the scripture. Uh, they have been taught. Now, they have been taught, especially if they have spent any time in Western countries. If they've come here from someplace else, they may not have, if they've not spent a lot of time around Christians, they may not have been poisoned much yet in regards to the Bible. And in fact, I've been told by missionaries in Africa uh, that many Muslims there tend to be very uh, open to the message of the Bible because they don't dwell as much on the alleged corruption of the Bible, because there aren't as many Christians around for them to bother to dwell upon the alleged corruption of the Bible. But that is a huge hurdle to get over. And obviously, the longer they've been here, the more they've been exposed, the more they've studied their own stuff, the more subtle or more difficult their arguments are going to be in regards to the corruption of Scripture. But, always what you'll discover is an inconsistency. They will never apply the same standards to the Quran that they do to the Bible. But, as is the case in all of our society anymore, we live in a day when, due to the internet, bad and false information about the history and transmission of the text of the Bible is available to anyone. Previous generations did not have to know much about where the Bible came from. Previous generations did not have to worry too much about synoptic issues and stuff like that. But folks, if you think that that's something we can still continue to ignore, you've got your head stuck in the sand. I'm sorry, you do. Because as close as anyone's droid or iPhone is something called the Internet and Google. And they can look it up and it is all over the place. Bart Ehrman and his brand is everywhere. And so we do need to know much more about how we got the Scriptures than we ever did in the past. And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to be an expert on everything there is to be an expert on. No one can be. I'm not. I can't answer every question, and I've engaged a lot of these topics. Nobody can necessarily learn Greek and Hebrew and all of textual criticism and all the rest of that stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to know where to go when we encounter honest questions. Because there are people who have honest questions and they've never been given meaningful answers. The Christian is always sort of just, you know, begged off. And, you know, we can tell when that's happening. I mentioned that this past Tuesday evening, I spent an hour and a half with, with Mormons in a Mormon war chapel, sitting right in front of the pulpit, talking to them about how Mormonism isn't true. And it became very painfully obvious at times that their primary spokesperson that I was talking to just didn't have an answer just was was believing something that's contradictory and just didn't really care but the answer was like well you know you're just getting into doctrine now but I know this is true what do you mean you know this is true that doesn't fly with anybody unless somebody who just wants to continue to believe but sometimes we pull the same stunt. we we do the same thing Um, and so we at least need to know where to go But it would be very helpful anymore. I think for anyone who wants to be active in in witnessing and and sharing the faith today, take some time to familiarize yourself with the backgrounds of the Bible. It's amazing how many objections you'll be able to handle. Just if you know the basics, because they generally don't know the basics. They're just repeating something somebody's told them. I mean, we are the ones making the allegation, this is the word of God. Shouldn't we have some understanding of where it came from? No, it did not drop down from heaven in calf skin with some indexing. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who think it did. Uh, and we need to know something about how it came together and the, and the process. And that should be something that's done in church on a regular basis. It really is. That should be something we, we ground our people in uh, at a regular basis. So, those are the big stumbling blocks. The reliability of Scripture over against the Quran. Who Jesus is. And what Jesus did. I mean, if you want three points in a poem, uh, I'll skip the poem, but there are your three points. And that's what you end up focused upon. Um, are there other areas of, of, that you can end up being dragged into? Yeah. But just like I suggest when you're witnessing to Mormons, that you have a goal in mind when you begin... If you begin any conversation with a Mormon, a Muslim, a Jehovah's Witness, we'll throw them all in for for good measure. If you begin a conversation with someone like that, and you don't have a goal in mind when you start, please do not be overly shocked if you don't get there. I mean, Christians come to me all the time, and they say... Oh, well, I talked to the Jehovah's Witness at the door, and man, I just don't feel like I accomplished anything. We talked about this, we talked about that, talked about 47 different things. I said, did you have a goal in mind when you started? Well, no. Well, then why are you surprised that you wandered all over the planet without ever getting anywhere? You didn't have a goal to begin with. If you don't have a goal in mind... Then once they bring up this topic, then you go off this direction and then they bring this up and you take this exit and then you take that exit and you you end up four counties over, but you you never really get where where you want to go. And so if you know what the big issues you want to communicate to somebody is, you see the Muslim coming, you see the Mormon coming, whatever it might be you know what they need to hear. At least, I hope you know what they need to hear. The Muslim needs to hear you know, those three areas we talked about, those big stumbling blocks. And so you want to present to them who Jesus is, their need for a Savior. Let the Holy Spirit bring conviction of sin. The, the love of God found in Jesus Christ. He's their Creator. He's their Lord. They will bow the knee to Him. He's not merely a result. If you've got that as your goal, then when they start taking you off over into political issues about Palestine or something you're not going to stay over there. You're going to be looking for ways to get back to where you want to be. You know, if you you encounter a road closure on the freeway, it throws you off onto the access road. What are you looking for? You're looking for a way to get back on the freeway. You're not looking to go wandering around out out in the boonies someplace. You want to get back on the freeway, get where you're going. Same thing with the Mormons, same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. You know what they need to hear and so you have the goal and you pursue it. And if you don't have that, how many of you have experience how many of you will admit that in your witnessing experience with these folks you got done and you felt like you had talked about everything and had accomplished absolutely nothing anybody okay there's a reason for that uh, you have to have a direction when people come out when we when we would witness the Mormon Easter pageant or go up to Salt Lake City and stuff like that they'd listen to me talking to folks and I'd get done with the conversation and go how did you control that conversation simple I had a goal and generally know more about what they believe than they do. And so I can use their language. I know where they're going to go before they get there. That was the big thing with Mormons. You know exactly what verses they're going to use. It's the same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. If you get to the verses before they can use them and use them correctly, you control the conversation. Just that simple. Now, the only way you can do that is if you memorize the Scriptures ahead of time. Uh, huge advantage to be able to, to control those situations. But still, having a goal is the way to do it. Um, and you can really accomplish something. And anybody who's left the Watchtower Bible and Track Society, for the truth, many people leave because they burn out. Many people leave because they're abused, but they end up as the great religiously abused. They don't, very few end up knowing the truth. Over a million people left the Watchtower Bible and Track Society after the failed 1975 prophecy, but almost none of them ended up in a Christian church. They're just the don't talk to me ever again about religion people. And there's a lot of mouth there. A lot of mouth there. It's sad. Uh, their, their numbers will be swelled by the campingites after October 22nd. Uh, well, it's true. Already their numbers have been swelled after May 21st, but there's a few holding on for the uh, October 22nd stuff. Uh, and then we'll have a new spiritualized date then. I called it before it happened. But anyway. Um... So, have a goal. No, know, know know how to get there, and that's uh, that's most important. Okay.